Yeah, Lord, we, <laughs> we just thank you for your grace to us. Uh, we know that it's only by grace that you have uh, you've torn the veil so that we can, we can come to you in praise and worship and prayer. We come before you this morning knowing that every blessing that you have to offer us, it's not found in anything that we've done or ever will do or ever could do, but that you make all things available to us only in Christ. And we ask nothing more or less from you this morning than to just do your work through your word. We come hopeful and we come expectant that you're going to keep changing our hearts from one degree of glory to the next, helping us to believe that what you say is true and to walk in deeper and deeper faith and trust in you. We pray to that end this morning. Amen. You all can have a seat. Romans 7 this morning. We're moving through this thing, aren't we? Romans 7, 1 to 6. Turn there with me if you would. Good morning, by the way. It's nice to see all of your beautiful faces. Romans 7, 1 to 6. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Since I'm speaking to those who know the law, Brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she's married to another man while her husband is living, she'd be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then, if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relationship to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law since we have died to what held us. So we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Uh, let me read you a statement from a book that I read recently. And uh, I want you to try to decide what you think about it. All right. Here it is. Careful obedience to God's law may actually serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. Let me read it again. Careful obedience to God's law may actually serve as a strategy for rebelling against him. Now I'd imagine in a room uh, this size, there are going to be all kinds of uh, different reactions or feelings to that statement. But what we all have to understand is that regardless of how you think or feel about it, if you have any sort of strong feelings or opinions towards it at all, you've already answered a number of questions in your mind about several different things. You've already made several decisions in your mind about what rebellion against God is and looks like, what sin is, what God's law is, and what its intended function is, and then 
we deduce from there. But one thing that we often fail to do that's absolutely essential before we can even begin to grapple with something like how we should think about the law of God and the life of the believer is to find the relationship. We can think about it like this. Every uh, romantic relationship has moments in it that define the relationship, if you will. Maybe it is that actual uh, specific conversation where you've kind of uh, just been talking and hanging out casually, uh, but now it's time for a little more honesty and clarity about what the intentions are here and where this thing is going, right? But it can also be more informal than that. Maybe it's a, it's a first date uh, where she finds out that you're a solid meat and potatoes guy, and you find out she's vegan. <laughs> That's going to define the relationship pretty quickly. Or maybe you're an Ohio State football fan. And I, you, I don't know, you, you find out that she grew up in Ann Arbor, and then you find out that her family has season tickets to watch home football games in that place that we don't talk about up there that may or may not define the relationship a little bit. <laughs> Maybe it's when you introduce them to your parents for the first time. <laughs> for the two of you, it was love at first sight, but you get the parents involved, and it's love at seventh, eighth. Ninth, tenth sight, I don't know. That can oftentimes very quickly define the relationship for you, or maybe it's the most important and biggest step you could possibly ever take. You make that relationship Facebook official. <laughs> I know some of you all feel me on that one. This goes on for all of life. You get engaged, you get married, you have kids, you have grandkids. Maybe not defining the nature of that relationship per se, but the quality and the depth of it. And what's significant about all of those moments is they inform, in a lot of ways, determine how you relate to that person. Are you with me here? This is significant as we approach the question of our relationship to the law, because the law this morning, it's not presented in our text as just an abstract set of commands that we, we just approach with the decision, should we do it or should we not do it? It's relational. Our text, it's highly theological, but it's also highly relational. The theology of the text, if you will, it's grounded in the relational language of the text. And so the question we first have to answer is not, should I aim to keep the law or should I not? The first question that we actually have to answer is, what is my relationship to it? And only once we've defined the relationship can we begin to ask what that means for how we relate to it. And so let's attempt to do just that. The first defining dynamic, if you will, in our relationship to the law is that we live under it. As Paul says in verse 1 there, the law rules over someone as long as he lives. And this authority, it's not just any authority, it's, it's relational authority. The life under the law, it's a committed belonging to Analogous to a marriage in which if you were to become committed to another while still under the law, you would be considered an adulterer. And so it's the nature of our relationship to the law that gives the law authority over us. That's why the analogy is one of a husband and wife. Right after the statement in verse 1, Paul, he goes uh, straight into this analogy in the next couple of verses about how as long as the husband lives and the wife acts outside the bounds of the relationship to the husband, she's an adulteress. The thing that binds her to him, it's her, it's her life with him. And the only thing that could change that is if he 
if he dies. The dominant backdrop uh, to all of this, of course, is it's Israel's life under the Old Covenant and the fact that they're, they're over and over and over again on the pages of Scripture described as being the adulterous husband or the adulterous wife, uh, depending on what the authors are talking about. Sometimes they're, they're the adulterous wife to Yahweh himself. Uh, you can think about the entire book of Hosea there. Uh, that's what that's about. But other times, like in the book of Malachi, Israel is actually portrayed as being the husband to the law or to the Old Covenant. And so Israel is not only talked about being in, the, in this kind of marital relationship with Yahweh, but also with the Old Covenant and with the law. In fact, it's only because Israel was first unfaithful to Yahweh that they actually have to be wedded to the law in the first place. We'll, we'll revisit this a little bit and talk more about the giving of the law later, but it was only after Israel failed to, failed to uh, trust God and obey him that the law was given. While the major theme, it is Israel under the Old Covenant, those outside the covenant, they're not absolved from this conversation, this idea of being under the law, because as Romans 2 speaks about, which we already talked about, even the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts in such a way that they too are held accountable to it. It's the law actually written on their hearts that testifies against them and holds them without excuse in their rebellion against God. So while Israel is more formally wedded to it, the law rules over everyone and holds all accountable to it. This, of course, is all, it's all going to change when God ushers in a new covenant. That's where the entire Old Testament is going. It's where our text is going. But before we look at that transition, we should first consider, is this kind of relationship with the law a good thing or a bad thing? We know that far too often, even though a couple might be married, uh, it doesn't mean it's a good one, right? The marriage license may still say that they're, they're married, the state may declare it, um, but they don't love each other, they don't like each other, they don't even often try to pretend as if they do. And so it's not enough to just define the nature of the relationship here. We also have to ask, what is the quality of that relationship? And the Bible speaks on this and seems to suggest that while this relationship, it does serve a specific purpose for God's people and his, his overarching plan of redemption, it's not ultimately a healthy relationship for two specific reasons that I want to highlight from our text this morning. The first major problem with this relationship is that Israel is unable to be faithful in it. They're unable to be faithful to the law or to the old covenant. Uh, if you read through the Old Testament, you won't find many places where uh, God or the authors or the prophets are commending Israel on their marital fidelity, right? <laughs> Much the opposite. And the reason for that is because of what Paul, he's already spent a lot of time belaboring to us in Romans that all men are wicked and depraved outside of Christ. They're not able to keep the law and the covenant on their own because deep down inside their hearts, they live in opposition to it. And the message of all of that, all of that is that until that problem is solved, there's only one thing that you're going to be in relationship to the law. An adulterer. That's it. That's why the analogy in our text talks about adultery. That's why a new covenant is needed, one that, one that actually changes the heart and gives the spirit, which is, actually, which is exactly where Paul is going. 
the law then, it cannot be the answer to the problem that humanity needs cured so that they can once again be in a right relationship with God because it can't solve the problem. The only thing it does is highlight the problem. There's so much to say here, but let's, let's try to go there and do this thing quickly because you really have to understand what's going on here in order to understand the logic of what Paul is doing. We're, we're under the law. We're asking if this is good or not. And the first reason we're saying that it's not good is that it doesn't solve the problem. Uh, one way that this is evident, uh, even from the Old Testament narrative, is that the law is only ever added because of transgressions. It's not given to solve the problem, only restrain and highlight the problem. Friends, there are, there are 613 laws given in the first five books of the Bible. 613 laws. And when we read the story carefully, what we see is that it's, it's very clear that the intention of those laws is not to fix the problem because they just keep getting added and added and added in the aftermath of Israel's failure to keep the laws. <laughs> this is why Paul says in Galatians 3, the law, it was added for transgressions. The book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says this in chapter 7 as well when he talks about how the law, it only came after Israel failed to trust God and obey him. Because the entire pattern of the, the giving of the law in the Old Testament story, Israel's sins, the laws are given, Israel sins more, more laws are given, and on and on and on. There's no clearer example of this, I don't think, than the, than the, the golden calf where uh, they get the Ten Commandments, they come down, Moses goes back up for more laws, and before he even gets back down off the mountain, Israel's already neck deep in idol worship. <laughs> They've crafted up this stupid calf, which I, like, it, it makes no sense to me, right? Like, I'm a city boy, maybe this makes sense to you country people with your animals and stuff, right? Uh, we like other things, like chain restaurants and street lights, okay? Uh, but I'm not bowing down to no calf, right? It's just not happening. But literally, right after they get the Ten Commandments, and on the heels of 12 chapters of Moses up on the mountain and God giving his law after law after law, instruction about this, instruction about that, provision for this, provision for that, the first one of which says, do not have any other gods beside me, they fashion a golden calf and are bowing down to it. And then what is the very next thing that happens after that's over? More laws. More commands. The law was added for transgressions to restrain and highlight sin. And that's why it just keeps getting added. It was never intended to fix their sin problem. And the text and the story never suggest that. A second way we know that the law doesn't solve the problem is that the Bible and God himself, they actually anticipate that it's going to be broken. The law cannot be what brings them back into relationship with God because God himself anticipates that they're going to break it. We see this clearly at the end of Deuteronomy where, where Moses, he begins to uh, write and address future generations of readers and what he says to them is that you are going to come into the land that God promised you, but once you get there, <laughs> you're not going to keep God's commands. 
And because of that, you're going to be taken back out of that land and sent into exile and judgment. Uh, just think about that for a moment. Mo- Moses writes for those who are going to come after him. They're not even here yet. Telling them what they need to do when they're taken back out of the land God promised due to their covenant infidelity. And so the perspective of the Bible is not, well, let's try the law and then we'll just kind of sit back for a while, see how it pans out. <laughs> and if it doesn't go well, then maybe we can, we can pivot from there and come up with something else. No, it is, it is never assumed that they may actually do this thing and keep God's law the way they've been commanded to. And not only that, this is, this is actually the most profound part of it. Not only does God not plan on us keeping it, but he actually has a plan in place for when they break it. <laughs> Before we ever get there in the story, the Bible is already telling us what God is going to do when Israel does not keep the law. And it's not Carrie Underwood digging a key into the side of their pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, right? Or taking a Louisville slugger to both headlights. So maybe next time they'll think before they cheat on him again. That's not what God says. (laughs) God's plan that he presents for restoring the relationship before they ever get there is not that he's going to continue giving them more laws. You hear me. It's that he's going to give them the most precious thing he could ever think of himself. He's going to give them his son, Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, the one who atones for his people. He's going to give them his spirit who will circumcise their hearts, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Because that's been the goal all along. It's not better moral action. It's an actual relationship with God that is only possible through the giving of himself to us. And and the message from the very beginning is to trust in that and not in your ability to keep the law because you can't. And so just quickly, our relationship to the law is not good, first, because it doesn't solve our problem. And we know that from the Bible because the law is only added for transgressions And because even when it's given, the Bible anticipates that it's going to be broken. And this brings us to the second major problem with this relationship to the law, which is that not only does the law not defeat sin for us, it actually partners with sin and works for our death and destruction. This is what Paul says in verse 5 this morning when he says, For when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. This is why some of the same language and logic is used about our relationship to the law and our relationship uh, to to sin. Notice just kind of high level the flow of Romans 6 and 7. Uh, Romans 6, you had to die to sin so that you could have new life with Christ. Romans 7, 4. You had to die to the law so you can belong to Christ. Romans 6, you are free from the power of sin and death. Romans 7, verse 6, you are free from the law and its rule over you. Romans 6, you've died to sin, so offer yourselves for tools of righteousness, not unrighteousness. Romans 7, our text, you've died and been released from the law, 
so you can no longer bear fruit for death, but now serve in the new way of the Spirit and bear fruit for God. Uh, see, we, we often just think in these terms. Um, sin, bad. <laughs> law, good. But it's not that simple. There's, there's a way in which sin operates through the law that results in the law not taking away our sin, rather compounding upon it. And the end of that operation is ultimately our death and condemnation. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six, Paul says this, Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. If we're not paying close attention, we will read Romans 6 and Romans 7 to be about two different things. Sin and the law. Uh, but, that, but that's not what Paul's doing. The law is not something altogether uh, separate and unrelated that we need free from. No, it's the, it's the very thing that our sin and our flesh operate through to bring death and condemnation upon us. The law itself is holy and righteous and good, as Paul's going to say in just a few verses in Romans 7, uh, 12. But the way that it functions, for those underneath of it, it doesn't ever bring life, only death. This is first because of the condition of our heart. In Romans 8, Paul's going to talk about how the mindset of the flesh is, is hostility towards God. It doesn't, doesn't accept him or submit to him. But, but that, <laughs> that idea right there, that the foundational issue is the hostility in our hearts towards God, that's where everything that we've just said begins to tie directly into what Paul's doing in Romans because without thinking carefully, we often just assume that when the Bible speaks about our hostile heart towards God and his commands, it's simply referring to a failure to keep it and do them. A failure to comply with what it says. But that's not it, friends. <laughs> that is not it. There are two ways our flesh rebels against God and his law. This hostility towards God, it can either be demonstrated in a loud outward rebellion or a more quiet inward rebellion that would cloak itself in outward conformity. And no matter what your cup of tea is, God never intended that you would come to him in that way. If everything we've just said is true, remember that the law, it's never presented as a way into right, right relationship with God, that God actually anticipates that the law will be broken when he gives it, and that he's all, always had a plan in place for when that happens. And if Paul is right, when he says just a few verses later that the righteous requirements of the law are only fulfilled in us through Christ, if that is all true, then again, no matter what your, what your cup of tea is or what your style of choice in your rebellion is, the real danger that the Bible has in mind when it talks about your hostile and wicked heart towards God, it's not primarily a failure to keep God's law. No, far worse. It's actually thinking that you can. It's a shocking message that careful obedience to God's law may actually serve as a strategy for rebelling against him. Both postures towards God of, of outwardly rejecting God's law and of trying to keep the law and earn your way to him, both of them demonstrate the same heart that is opposed to God because they both fail to love him for who he is, the giver of the gift. It's easy 
It's easy to point out the prodigal son who outwardly wishes his father's death so that he can be free from him and be able to live for nothing but his own temporary pleasure and satisfaction. It's much harder to see the older brother who does everything the father has asked of him, yet inwardly hates him just as much because he also wants to receive the father's love on his own terms. Even though it looks differently in each of them, the problem for both of them is the exact same. And because the problem is the exact same, the solution is the exact same. They don't just need help keeping the law. Instead, they actually need to be brought out from underneath of it. And praise God, that's exactly what he does for us in the death of Christ. This brings us to the second defining moment in our relationship to the law, which is that we have actually died to it through the body of Christ. We're wedded to the law, and that's a bad marriage for us because the law doesn't take away our sin. It works in tandem with it, resulting in our condemnation. Uh, But as the analogy in verses 2 to 3 would suggest, that the only way to be brought out from under that obligation uh, in that relationship is through death. And now in verse 4 he says that's, a, that's exactly what's happened. We've been put to death in relation to the law. A point being the law no longer rules over you. <laughs> Romans 6, it begins with this whole idea of, of dying with Christ in your union with him and being raised to a new life. There he emphasizes that when we died to the power, uh, sorry, he, he emphasizes that when we died, we died to the power of sin and death. Here, he emphasizes that in that that very same death and in that very same union with Christ, we also died to our relationship to the law, to the Old Covenant. And so you no longer have the same obligation to it. As we said earlier, these these relationship-defining moments, they should determine and inform how you go on relating to that person moving forward. Uh, If we can just keep playing on the relationship analogy um, say you, you sit down with a girl you're interested in, right? Uh, and you, you, finally, you finally have that talk, right? And you want to you wanna know, is she feeling you the same way you're feeling her? And God forbid, she says no. <laughs> I don't want to keep hanging out and talking to you. That should inform how you go on relating to that person, should it not? Should you keep hitting her up, calling her, texting her, asking her to hang out? <laughs> No, it's over, bro. Keep it moving, right? Amen. Somebody in here needed to hear that this morning. I know they did. <laughs> that's you. you hey, that's for free. You hang on to that one. I got some ladies in here somewhere saying, amen, brother. If Paul says you've died to the law, that should inform how you relate to it. Should you now keep on living like you belong to it? like you're obligated to its demands, like the Lord is going to accept you more if you keep it better. No. The law and its demands on you, they no longer rule over you because you've died to it through the body of Christ. And so we need to treat it as if we died to it. Uh, There are several purpose statements uh, stringed in a row here that kind of help us explain what exactly this should look like. The first, is, first of which is stated here in verse 4. 
which is that we have, we, have, uh, we have to die to the law so we can belong to Christ. You'll see that very clearly there. You were put to death in relationship to the law through the body of Christ so that you can belong to another. Well, who's the other that we belong to now? Verse 5, you belong to him who was raised from the dead. That's, that's Jesus Christ. Again, this is what the analogy in verses 2 to 3 is all about. You can't, you can't belong to another person until there's a death that takes place in that relationship. And so we die to the law so that we can now belong to Christ. This now raises the question of why we'd, why we'd have to die to the law to belong to Christ. Doesn't Christ come to fulfill the law? Why is he being pitted against it here? We've talked about the relationship between sin and the law, uh, but so much of the misunderstanding in our life, I think, often also comes from how we think about the relationship between Christ and the law. People often want to talk as if Christ comes down off his throne merely to help us keep the law better. And there's a lot of theology out there that wants to put the law in the center of God's plan for his people and at the center of the Christian life. And then what they do is they, they make Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the ones who help us keep it now, as if that was ever the goal in the first place. But what Paul is arguing in this text and what we've already spent time trying to argue this morning, it's exactly the opposite of that. Not that Jesus is the servant of the law, rather, the law is the servant of Christ. The law is not the goal of our being in Christ. Our being in Christ is the goal of the law. The law is not the goal of human history. Christ is the goal of human history. And therefore, the law is not the goal of your life. Christ is the goal of your life. Amen? Jesus does not come down off of his throne, enter into human history to point us to the law. <laughs> other way around. The law came down with Moses from the top of the mountain, entered into human history to point us to our need for Christ. The law does not provide what God requires. Instead, God demands what he gives, and he gives what he demands freely in Christ. Careful obedience can actually turn out to be a strategy for rebelling against God because it would cause you to miss the entire point of the law, which is to point you to your need for Jesus. Because only in Christ are we given what God righteously requires of us. Paul in Philippians 3 verses 8 to 9 writes that he has counted everything as loss in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what the entire Bible is pointing to. And it can be, can be difficult to see, especially when you read through the story. You notice there's, there's a whole lot of laws there, right? Uh, think again about uh, the Pentateuch, first five books, also called the, the Book of the Law, with its 613 laws listed. Even then, it's not a book about laws, but a book about faith in Christ. And many will object to that and, and, and rightly say part of good Bible reading is to look at what the author spends you know, the most time talking about and use that as a metric to determine kind of what the overall message of the book is. And so, if there's that much talk about laws and faith is only mentioned a few times, well then the first five books, they must be about keeping the law. But it's not. <laughs> it's about faith. It's about Christ. How can I say that? 
Uh, I, I heard a, a color commentator the other night during an NBA basketball game. He, uh, he made this comment about a player. <laughs> he said, um, he's not always there when you need him, but he's always on time. <laughs> not exactly a glowing endorse, endorsement, um, but point being, even though he's, he's not the most consistent, you're not going to get your A-plus stuff from him every second of every game. He's clutch in all the big moments when you really need him, right? When the game is, is at its most climactic point and the lights are shining the brightest, he shows up and he comes through. I think we can make a similar point about seeing Jesus on the pages of our Bibles because even though much of the Bible, it talks about the law and the need to remember it and Israel's failure to keep it and how Christ fulfills it. And even though we don't see Jesus on every single letter of every single page, he's there. In all the big moments, in all the places where it matters most, the authors, they, they weave him into the story so that when you, you step back and you look at the highlights, it's undeniably clear it's all about him. From as early as Genesis 3, verse 15, it was Christ, not the law, that would come crush the head of the serpent. <laughs> Genesis 15, 6, it was Abraham's faith that saved him in Christ, not the law. Genesis 49, the line of Judah, it was Christ, not the law. Numbers 24, Christ, not the law. Deuteronomy 18, 32, 34, all pointing us to the need for Christ, not the law, and more could be listed. And so in a book that is saturated with conversation about laws, when you, when you step back and look at the biggest moments, it's all about Jesus, so that when you read it and, you, and you, you watch Israel fail to keep it and you see the law fail to solve the problem, the only conclusion that you could possibly come to from reading their story is to stop trying to do it yourself because you can't rather trust in the one coming who does it for you. C.S. Lewis. Now we cannot discover our failure to keep God's law except by trying our very hardest and then failing. Unless we really try, whatever we say there will always be at the back of our minds the idea that if we just try harder next time, we shall succeed in being completely good. Thus, in one sense, the road back to God is a road of moral effort, of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it is not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say, you must do this, I can't. Luther said it this way, he said, one is not righteous who does much, but the one who without work believes much in Christ. The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace, which is only available in Christ, says, believe in this, and everything is already done. Gosh, our, our hearts and our lives would change if we could just get this one simple truth and have it sink into the depth of our souls. Have it penetrate every weak moment of disbelief that would, that would think that what God would have of me is not first just to, just to believe him and love him and enjoy a relationship with him, but that it would be that I would perform better. And we have all kinds of trauma from our past life under the law. We're so used to being 
being tormented by the law and its impossible demands over us, that we, that we, we come over here into our new relationship with Christ and we function as if our new husband is the same as the old one. We see Jesus just as the new, the new taskmaster, ready to condemn us when we mess up. And so we relate to him in the same way that we do the law. When in fact, if the analogy holds true, that to give yourself to another while your husband still lives as adultery, then our habits of reverting back to the law while we're married to Jesus, it's not, it's not faithfulness in our relationship to him like we might think. It's adulterous. Jesus is not the law. And he's nothing like the law. And in your best moments and in your worst moments, he looks at you the exact same. He's full of grace and mercy. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He's what we need. And now that he's come, the law has served its purpose and it's been done away with. And we can live with him forever. So where does that leave us? We've talked about two defining moments in our relationship to the law. We've, we've defined the relationship. Paul said that it rules over us as long as we live, that we've died to the authority of the law through the body of Christ. And so now those, those realities, they should properly inform the way we act and relate moving forward. How do we act now? What do we do? I think part of what we have to understand here is that our, our, our union with Christ, right, our, our belonging to Christ it's completely different than our belonging to the law and our, our union with a list of rules. <laughs> Paul says we've died to the law for the purpose of, so that we can now belong to Jesus. This now, it's a, it's a, it's a permanent relationship while death, it, it separated us from our relationship to the law. Christ, who we now belong to, he's the one who's actually risen from the dead, as verse 4 says. And so death, it's not going to separate you from this one. He's God's final answer but there's even more purpose here. He says, you, you belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. We bear fruit for God so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Uh, this idea of, of bearing fruit for God, walking in the Spirit, is what Paul talks about in Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26, where uh, he's talking about walking in the Spirit versus walking in the flesh. He says in verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then, uh, which is the exact same thing he's arguing in Romans 7. And then he, he goes on to uh, talk about what the works of the flesh under the law are. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, idolatry, etc. But the fruit of the Spirit, what we should walk in, is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. And right after that list, he says, against such things, there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ, sounds like our text, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Also sounds like our text. Since we live by the Spirit, also our text, we must also follow the Spirit. This is the new way of the Spirit and the fruit that we bear to God that Paul's talking about. And so we don't relate to Christ as if he just offers a new set of rules for us, or as if he's just here to enforce the law, we relate to the law as if we're dead to it, and we relate to Christ as if, as if there's a new life that he has to offer, marked by grace and the fruit of the Spirit. This is a whole new paradigm. 
And in, in some ways, it is very complex and, and hard to understand. But in other ways, it's very simple. <laughs> because, friends, we were, we were made for a relationship with God. And our greatest need and our greatest end, it's not better behavior. It's being in a relationship with a real person. What does that mean for my behavior? Don't I have to bear fruit? Yeah, absolutely. Paul, Paul says all of that. But the, the behavior part of it that, that we are so obsessed with, in all reality, when you really step back and get what's going on here, it's, it's a small byproduct of what we really need and have available to us in Christ. It's union with Jesus. It's relationship with God. It's enjoying the depths of who he is forever. And friends, if we could, if we could understand that and, and be able to walk in it perfectly, we wouldn't be able to help but walk in love. We wouldn't be able to help but walk in joy. We'd have nothing but peace. But there's order and there's priority here. When we get them out of order, we, we distort the logic of the gospel. Understanding this, it would help guard us from false gospels like moralism that would emphasize behavior and morality in a way that is antithetical to what the Bible teaches. Too often we still fall into living like what we've been brought into is a marital union with a list of right behaviors and not a living, breathing person. We treat our new life in Christ as if all it provided was a clean slate. But the rules are all still the same. We can now say that we aren't, we aren't justified by anything we do, even though that's the natural inclination of our heart. We come to a place where, where we can confess that that's not actually true anymore. It's only by the grace of God. But then we come over here and we just take all of that sinful mindset before salvation and we apply it over here on this side. And now the way to be saved isn't about doing anymore, but the Christian life sure is. Not only do we believe this for ourselves, we, we, we preach it to the world around us as well, to our, our families and our children, our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, to the people out there whose sin may be different and weird to us, as if any sin isn't weird. We preach the false gospel that says that your greatest need is not to taste and see and feel the grace and mercy of Jesus and have fellowship with him. It's a new set of behaviors. And it makes sense to them because it's the, it's the world that we live in and the air that we breathe. We come up with all kinds of ways to, to bribe our kids into good behavior, like hypothetically M&Ms. I don't know, not saying that's what I do. Not saying it's not. It's just an example. Society rewards good behavior and punishes bad behavior. I'll confess, I'm, I'm just as bad as you are. I often find myself willing to offer my affection and acceptance when people are treating me well or when they're doing the things that I want them to do. And I'm just as willing to withhold those things when I feel like they've let me down or aren't living up to the standard. My three-year-old, <laughs> when we come home, he knows to tell us that he did a good job for whoever was watching him. Because we tell him all the time, we, we want you to, to be a good boy, be, do a good job. And he wants us to be happy with him. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. But hear me, I have to fight my sinful flesh that would allow me, the moment that I stop being conscious of it, to only communicate my love and acceptance of him when he's behaved the way that I want him to. I have to fight that, not only for his heart, but for my own, so that he knows, so that he knows his relationship to daddy, it's not just a proper set of behaviors, it's a real man that loves him unconditionally, and that there's nothing he could ever do to change that. Because, friends, that is what we have available in Jesus. That is the difference between the law and the gospel. That's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. That's the difference between the letter of the law that kills and the spirit that brings life. Do you understand the difference? Believer, your belonging to Christ is completely and utterly different than your belonging to a list of rules. It's a new way of living that should touch every facet of our lives. Jesus is Lord and he's master. Yes, he has demands on your life that you, that you absolutely need to walk in. But those demands, they don't come from someone just standing idly by, ready to punish you when you don't do it. They come from someone who's already done it on your behalf and who carries that burden for you. Who says, come to me and I'll give you rest. His domain and his rule over you, it's not one of condemnation. It's one of grace. And that should inform and determine how you relate to him. Worship team, you can come up. Richard Sibbs wrote, Moses, just talking about the giver of the law here, without any mercy breaks all bruised reeds and quenches all smoking flax. For the law requires personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience from the heart, all while under a most terrible curse, but gives no strength to do it. Christ, however, comes with blessing after blessing after blessing, even upon those who Moses had cursed, and with healing balm for those wounds which, which Moses had made. So many of us here this morning have been bruised by the law. Whether that's just by our own realization of sin, or our sin coming to light in some situation, or, or uh, a legalistic culture that we've been a part of, maybe by harsh words from someone meaningful to us, or the constant tormenting of our souls, and no matter what we do, it's not enough. And what every person in here needs, believer or unbeliever, it's not better behavior. It's not a longer list of rules. It's a relationship with Jesus. Because he's the one who heals our wounds and offers every blessing that we could ever imagine simply by believing that that impossible standard that you can't meet, he did it so you don't have to. One is not righteous who does much, but the one who believes much in Christ. Amen? Father, give us eyes to, to see you clearly, Lord. <laughs> give us hearts to believe. Help us to, 
to resist the temptation to, to look at you as merely an extension of the law's unforgiving demands on us, but rather that we would see you for who you are, Lord. You're the one who goes before us, the one who, who's taken us to the grave with you so that we could be dead to the law and its demands, dead to the power of sin and death, only to raise us back up so that we can live with you by grace forever. Give us eyes that don't just look inwardly, don't just look around. Give us eyes that can see you upward, seated on your throne, having accomplished your work on our behalf. Give us eyes to look ahead, to see the perfect inheritance waiting for us, where you wipe away our every tear, where sin and death are defeated forever. Lord, we love you. We pray in your name. Amen.